And I think when Paul realized, you know, hey, I'm not the only outsider. There's this community that was also not part of the Jerusalem church that got expelled or something. And that, that gave him a little chutzpah. The Apostle Paul, today on In the Shadow of the Cross. Everybody. Welcome back to another episode of In the Shadow of the Cross. Thanks for joining us. I'm here once again with my friends Jim Durkin. Hello. And Michael Harden. Hello. Hello. And today we have a, another interesting topic for you. Uh, we thought it would be cool to talk about the Apostle Paul. Talk about a very popular person to look at. Uh, Christians use his letters all the time, especially in, in sermons and writings. And uh, it's a, a, a he's a, a, a highly discussed individual. Um, but it's also interesting how I, I found that everybody likes to make Paul be their guy. <laughs> I've, I've seen people go as far as to say Paul was, uh, you know, pro-law or um, I've watched people say he was misogynistic. Um, I've, I've seen people kind of make Paul fit whatever image that they want him to fit. And we thought it would be interesting here to, to actually talk about Paul from, from a standpoint of who was this guy and from his writings, what do we know about him? Um, did he always believe the same way? Was he in the exact same mindset as all the other apostles? Were, were there things about Paul that maybe we didn't grew up, if you're like me, not so aware of? So, um, so we're going to do that. We're going to look at, at this interesting guy, Paul. So guys, what do we know about Paul? Who is this guy? Well, before we talk about Paul, what we need to talk about is the early church in the second century um, saw the need for apostolic succession. And so they began collecting their literature and their traditions uh, from those that were apostles, Paul included. Okay. Uh, Peter, Mark is connected to Peter in the tradition uh, the Ohanine authors connected with um, uh, John, the son of Zebedee, in the tradition. Matthew with Matthew, the scribe, in the tradition. Uh, and Luke, the companion of Paul. So you have apostolicity in this. But, but as the church is in battling with Gnosticism for the next 300 years, and it moves towards a theological orthodoxy in the doctrine of the Trinity, it also brings with it this concept that the early church was united, was one, and there's one apostolic teaching, and then we just begin to move on through the ages. Now, this notion of one doctrine, one apostolic doctrine, right, in the post-Reformation period was shattered uh, because of the Reformation. And in the uh, around the, 18, the beginning of the 19th century, early 1800s, um, there was a New Testament scholar, uh, Ferdinand Christian Bauer, who was looking at the Pauline literature and saw that there was a real break. There were real issues between Paul and the Jerusalem church. 
And so Bauer developed this thesis that there's there was some the early church wasn't one. It wasn't always united. It didn't start in unity. You see what I, you know what I mean? And so that thesis has been revised, killed off, revived again in different forms for the last several hundred years. I think the most recent and 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 interesting forms is that of Michael Goulder in his work on this particular topic. But if we are willing to take Paul at his word in, in Galatians. He has people from the Jerusalem church coming into his congregation saying that what he's been teaching them is wrong. Right. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, this is from his own mouth. Right. Okay. So as we're discussing Paul, we're going to want to just keep that in mind. Number two, we, we want to use Paul's letters not Acts, because Acts is written half a century later than Paul's death. Acts is uh, not a history as such. It's it's a wonderful, delightful narrative. It's full of insight and into the early church, but it is not a history as such. Can, can uh, we camp there just a second? Because because what what you just said probably just blew a lot of people's minds and, you know, kind of rocked their world a little bit. So can can you expand on that? Well, it would, you know, I mean, I would, there would be so much here, uh, Lauren, to, to do. We would have to talk about Luke's use of sources, the kinds of sources he's using, um, when the book is written, why it's being written, why do I f- follow, for example, Joseph Tyson and date it into the teen, late teens of the second century, you know? So um, there, there would be much to unpack there. Nevertheless, Acts is it's a record it's a written there's there's written sources behind it okay there's the first 13 chapters uh Luke pretty much has to make up chapters 14 and 15 and then he gets to the travel log and then he's in and out of the travel log on the journey it depends on when the person that's writing the we sections of acts uh, is with Paul or not, because if he's not, then it says, and they, and they, and they. But when this character rejoins the narrative, it's, and we, and we, and we, you know. So many things to discuss. What's what's important here is that we're going to use primary material. We're going to use Paul's letters. Okay. We're, going to, we're not going to try to fit Paul into Luke's portrait of Paul. Oh, right? I follow what you're saying. Okay. So, so it's Paul. like... Luke's the biographer who's yeah good okay and and we're gonna in the process of all of this if we get to it we'll actually uncover a bit of editorial fatigue by Luke uh, on a very very important topic related to Paul and uh, the Jerusalem community uh, and the letter they sent out and I think I may have mentioned this before uh, in when Paul comes back to Jerusalem in Acts 21, I believe, whenever it is, uh, they take him aside. And they say, hey, uh, nice to see you. Uh, we wrote a letter. We need to tell you about this letter we sent out. As though, as though Luke didn't have Paul already there at the letter writing in Acts 15. You know what I mean? Right. So, so we're going to, we can get into that. We, but, but it's really key. If we're going to start with this thesis, we have to ask, what was the battle over? And we're given one story, and that's the incident at Antioch. So and, and what, what was the battle over at Antioch? Yes, that was going to be my question. Mm-hmm. 
Go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to say, wasn't that a, wasn't it circumcision in, in the Gentiles? Um, no. Okay. No. no, this is a community that is the first Gentile welcoming community. Oh, it was, could they eat with the Gentiles? Could they eat together? Yes. And but that was a huge deal. Is, the anti, the Antiochians had already figured out they could. Okay. Okay. They were actually eating with the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They'd seen this bigger eschatological vision. Okay. Yeah. And um, it, the leadership in Jerusalem gets word of this and sends figures up north to shut this thing down. Now. Okay. Pause real quick because I just want to highlight what you just said. <laughs> this needs a, a sports highlight reel there. I mean, a replay. Because you just said they got word that they're eating together. Yeah. And they sent people yeah. because right. that's that's not a good thing. That's right. You have Jewish Christians eating with Gentile Christians. Not Jews eating with Gentiles. Jewish Christians eating with Gentile Christians. Okay. Jews come up from the south. They come in, they're going to shut this thing down right right there. And the Apostle Paul stands up and he says, you hypocrites, you and your bad theology, right? And, and it, it, the stir is so great here over this issue that Paul loses. Wow. Everything goes along with the James crowd. Who knows what James said? Hey, I was with Jesus Christ Superstar. It was my big brother. I mean, whatever it was, whatever that authority was that James, the James Petrine Jerusalem Church tradition had, at that point, broke the Church of Antioch into two parts, Jewish Christian and Gentile Christian. Now, in Paul's mind, we know how Paul thinks in, in 2 Corinthians. The Antioch incident is sometime between 48 and 50. Depends where you want to situate it. I situate it in late 48 for comfort because I can account for it in the chronology at that point. You know, Big incident. Bam. Paul loses that battle. Barnabas. John Mark. Everybody else, where do they go? And here's Paul left standing all alone going, you know what? We were doing God's will, and now you've turned us off to that. Wow. Okay. What was the issue? For the Jews, the Jewish Christians, for the Jewish Christians, the James community, the issue was keeping the basic minimum standard of Jewishness. Okay. Which included three things, kosher, circumcision, and Sabbath. But in this case, only kosher is being dealt with. Hmm. Okay? okay, but if then we get to Galatia, now they've added circumcision. Right. By the, by the time the Gnostics get a hold of it in Colossae, they've added Sabbaths. Oh, okay? very so, interesting. So these three parts, mm-hmm. kosher, the minimum requirements, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, now, remember when we go back to the book of Acts, they send a letter with four minimum requirements. Yes. Mm-hmm. That, right? Mm-hmm. They're different, but they're... They're related to the Noahide covenant, but still, you have to have you have to have a little bit of Jewish in you in order to be Christian. Okay, right. Okay. okay. Now, when they when they make they break the church in two, 
you no longer have one body of Christ. Wow. You no longer have the celebrated reconciliation of Jew and Gentile at feast. Yeah. You've just lost your eschatological vision. Mm -hmm. You've lost your sociological formation. You've lost it all. And for Paul, everything was at stake at Antioch. Everything was at stake. And he lost. This is really important. Yeah. Because for the rest of his career, those emissaries from Jerusalem are going to be hounding his his uh, mission field. He says himself, I won't go into anybody else's mission field. Mm -hmm. Okay? But they're coming into his to correct him. We know Peter came to Corinth. What in the world is Peter doing in Corinth? And isn't it interesting, after Peter gets to Corinth, we have problems. Wow. We know these emissaries from James come to the Galatian churches Mm -hmm. and create problems. They don't get to Philippi, but Paul, the Philippians and Paul are very, very intimate, and they know about these rascally devils, (laughs) right? And in Romans, he's... He's writing a letter to a church he's never been to that he knows has heard of this other mission, mm-hmm. this James Peter mission. And Romans is his way of saying, I'm going to get my letter there before they get there and indoctrinate you. And so I'm going to, it's like a prophylactic in that sense, get my letter there. And it's an, it's an ambassadorial letter, as Robert Jewett observed in his great work. Um, it functions as Paul himself. It's an ambassadorial letter. It's really quite remarkable. And it 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 is very clear that the uh, Dia tribe in the first four chapters is set up over exactly the same types of issues that are being dealt with in the other letters in and around the keeping of the Torah. Is it is, is it a requirement that Gentiles keep any part of the Torah? Wow. Well, first I have to say, I, I see why they call you the dude of theology. Cause when I hear you talk, I go, dude, <laughs> the, the Californian in me, that's, that's all I can say. Um, really? there, there is, that is massive. We have to pause and acknowledge that a lot of people just had the worlds blown up because if, if they're like me, they were raised with the mentality that the early church, everything was in perfect harmony, in unity. All the apostles were walking in lockstep with each other. And there was just this great agreement other than a few, you know, minor disagreements here and there or something. Um, and the occasional heretic. Exactly. Right. And, and here um, it, it just, it, it just blows up that view and goes all the way from the beginning. We as followers of Christ were having issues. And, uh, and, and it, it also shows that um, I guess part of it is some of the people aren't um, as squeaky clean as we thought they were, if you'd put it that way. Um, and, uh, and then it also really opens up Paul's writings now on the the frustration you almost feel, especially in Galatians is what immediately comes to my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, it, the way I was taught with it is, is it's just, it's just a letter about law versus grace. And, you know, and, and when you read that, it's like, Oh, 
that that's not even the tip of the iceberg there you know there's there's huge stuff going on um what's really wonderful in the protestant tradition is uh protestants we we were we are filled with grace we don't follow the law and yet everything's about the rules of the damn church right <laughs> and they, they, obeying the law you know yeah and and then when you were talking about Romans too, my my mind immediately went to in Romans chapter one, um, because you're talking about how this is Paul writing to a church he's never been to, and and just how horribly that first chapter has been com- abused and completely missed the point that that what's what's really tragic is uh, um is that when Paul writes that because it, it's is you would know more about this than I do. But basically, um, he when Paul writes, he does the same thing in Galatians where he gives the voice of his opponent and then and then he uh, and then he rebuttals that that point with uh, well, with it, his it, answer. It, it's not so much in Galatians that he does it. He gives the uh, viewpoint of his yeah. interlocutor. But it's actually only here in Romans that that as Doug Campbell famously explored the, and for Campbell, you know, it's not going to stake his life on it or anything, but um, it certainly looks as though what Paul is doing in Romans one through four is a very formal rhetorical expose that would have been very familiar to the lettered People, the educated, the the house church leaders that that this letter is being written to, and the important thing here is that Paul sends someone when he sends his letters. He always sends them with someone. He doesn't put them in the general post, right? And the Romans had a general post, mm. you know. Yeah, they did. It was a good postal system for the ancient world. But Paul always sends the letter with someone. Why? If there's any number of reasons, but one, that person knows Paul's mind. They know how to interpret Paul. So if someone says, I don't understand that, they can explain it. But number two, in a letter like Romans, where you have the intentional use of the setting up of an opponent's argument, and you want to do it rhetorically as though it was their, their little sermon that you're going to rebut. Chapter 118 to 32 is that Jewish Christian. Gentiles are bad. They don't have the Torah. They're worthless. They do all kinds of deviated sexual things. They don't know anything. Brah, wrath of God's come upon them. Apocalyptic, Second Temple Jewish apocalyptic stuff, right? Yeah. Now, that viewpoint right there is standard Jewish trope, which means you go to the book Wisdom of Solomon, and you're going to find all most of what's there in Romans 1, 18 to 32, somewhere in the latter half of the, the book Wisdom of Solomon, sometimes chunked together. It's rather amazing. I, I saw that I, I just yeah. because I'd heard you mention that, and so I picked it, uh, picked up a Bible that had the uh, apocrypha yeah. in it, and and it was astonishing to see that. Yeah. And, I, and and I have to admit, I felt kind of betrayed. 
um, in the sense of that my whole life I'd been taught this particular way about Romans one and nobody ever said, Oh yeah, it's thought for thought of what's over right. here in this, right. in this other book that Paul is referencing a, a, a point of view that was familiar to the Jewish people, right. not yeah. his own point of view. Right. Right. And, and, and so what's really tragic, and I really hope people listen and get a hold of this, is that people who turn that into Paul's stance on the letter and, 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 you know, go to war over this, you know, that passage, what they don't understand is they're actually siding with the opponent, the well, exact right. point that's of view right. that, that Paul was opposing. So you're yeah. actually standing toe to toe directly opposite of yep. Paul because yep. of your bad interpretation. Um, and if you need to know the term, look up the term uh, for those listening. It's called prosepopoia. Prosepopoia. Yep. And it's it's a Greek literary uh, device uh, to, to argue a point, much like our politicians when they debate or something, right. that you would, you would right. present the opponent's argument and then you would present your point your of rebuttal. view, your counter. Yeah, your rebuttal to that. And, yeah. uh, and that the entire book of Romans, well, not the entire book, but a big chunk of it is written that way. And well, chapters, this first check in chapter one, Paul's going to rebut in chapters two, three, and four. See, he starts off by saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel, which he's later going to call my gospel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah. Right. Uh, for it is the power of God to save to everyone who trusts, Right? For the for God is is rectifying the righteousness of God rather is the rectification of God is revealed through trust as it is written he who trusts is righteous and shall live trust is the key yeah okay? now Paul doesn't come back to his gospel until chapter five yeah he first has to show that okay. If you want to start off with this Gentiles as nasty sluggards, uh, let's look at you, my Jewish friends. And then, uh, as Campbell observes, he's actually citing certain uh, uh, events that took place, a very famous theft, uh, a Jewish uh, merchant uh, uh, was uh, caught as a thief. And so in 214 or so where Paul says, or do not some of you steal? He's referring oh. to these incidents, right? Interesting. See, hold on. I, I, I want to pause again because this kind of stuff fascinates me. Um, because we so often, you know, when we read these things, we're reading the past, that we don't realize that for them, this is contemporary writing. This is contemporary. That's correct. So That's Paul correct. is referencing something just as the same as if yeah. I referenced something maybe about Joe Biden or something, right, you know? Right, right, exactly. So, so the argument for Paul in chapter 2 and 3 is that we're all condemned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. End of story. And the wages of sin is death. And by the time Paul is done slicing and dicing the interlocutor, God hates everybody, as Mark Driscoll puts it. <laughs> right? Right. Right. <laughs> But he's merciful, and, and, and so we're going to turn the tide there at the end of chapter 3, and we're going to talk about mercy and how big and expansive mercy is. And after he uses Abraham to justify his epistemology of trust, okay, chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8 is Paul's theology. That's Paul's theology. 5, 6, 7, and 8. Yeah. Okay. 
Now he has to go back and battle the interlocutor and the concept that the Jews are the chosen people. They're the ones that have the salvation. Paul has to go, nope, this thing has been blown wide open. You have to have a bigger view of history. And so in chapters uh, 9, 10, and 11, particularly 9 and 10, okay, particularly 9 and 10, you're going to get a lot of the interlocutor again, right? And the Calvinists come in and go, oh, good, we'll make a doctrine of election here. (laughs) No, 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 no. no, So again, you're you're taking the voice of the opponent to to be Paul's mind. So in chapter 11, you know, as Paul brings the the grafting of the trees together, um, he says, I'm going to tell you again what I said in chapter 3. But I, don't, I know we don't have chapters in Paul's letters, but I'm going to tell you again what I said in chapter 3. All have sinned. All have sinned. All God has put all under disobedience. Why? In order that he might have mercy on them all. And now we've harkened back to Romans chapter 5 and the Adam-Christ parallelism, right? As in Adam all dies, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Mm-hmm. Man, Right? Boom, boom, boom. And then chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15 are the Didache, Paul's Didache, right? Okay. And and the way it relates to what? In chapter 14, to what? Food, kosher, the issue of kosher, eating. Is there one Eucharist or are there two Eucharists? One body of Christ or two body of Christ's? Paul's vision in all of his letters is one body of Christ. One, but we are baptized into one body. Ephesians chapter four, right, right. One body, one body, not two. Yeah. Not possible, not, and you can't separate them. Can't separate them. Unfortunately, uh, within a decade of 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 Paul's writing his letters, history would force the split, and Jerusalem would come under siege and war for four years, and eventually the Jewish Jewish Christianity went off into the east and down into Africa, and Pauline Christianity and, and Johannine Christianity uh, uh, de- uh, developed in in and around the Mediterranean and then up into Europe in particular, or what we, I would call, quote, early, quote, apostolic, unquote, unquote, Christianity, you know. Okay. Um, and, and so Jewish Christianity and, and Gentile Christianity are severed by history. Right. It, it, and the thing I find interesting about what you're talking about with Romans is that sometimes we don't really understand it. It's almost like it's almost like when Paul was writing it, the, the way we would have a view. It's almost like Paul's just this theologian just sitting there theologizing, you know, um, just writing these big books and you know writing these letters. And but what I love that you you really bring that down is that no Paul is addressing a very prevalent issue. And and there is a clear point to what he's driving at. Like you said, the issue of food, the issue of division, the, the Gentile Jewish division there. It's like this is this is a serious issue that he's facing. Yeah, it's the same. So we have this the same fundamental structural setup here in America today. Can straight people have communion with gay people? Exactly. See. Exactly, and when the and of course you know the the fundamentalist uh, side of the tradition uh, will bring in the law and try to say nope, don't do that, can't have you know we've got denominations literally 
they have not split for anything for hundreds of years, and they are splitting now over this issue of growing acceptance within modern Christendom of the LGBTQ plus communities. Right. And, and, and the, the irony is the, the chapter that's used, the, the New Testament passage that's used to, to hold the position is the exact argument Paul was saying, Jews, this is what you think of Gentiles. And the, and the, and the modern Christians are going, this is what we think of gays. <laughs> and it's like, so you're exactly doing what the Jews did, splitting the church over saying, saying that there, there are those who, when, when, you know, if, if you take the book of Acts, you know what the Lord has cleansed, let no one call unclean. Um, you're still saying there are those who are unclean. I'd like to go back to something you said earlier. I've been kind of camping on that for, for a while. Um, you were talking about the, uh, the split, if you will. You mentioned that uh, Barnabas and uh, I believe John Mark pulled away from Paul. Right. And I, I believe you said that it was over this very issue of, of eating with uh, uh, Gentiles. Um, Correct. I thought, I thought the argument was over John Mark. Can you explain that? Okay, so let's just jump into... You don't know the chapter that the John... Paul and Barnabas separate. Here we go. Okay, so... Okay, okay, okay. So Acts 15... Tells the story of this apostolic council. Right. Right. And, uh, of course, uh, it has to validate Peter. First of all, Peter gets credit for going to the Gentiles. Correct. And that whole Cornelius story in the book of Acts, right, um, which may be historical, but it's certainly, it's certainly not uh, a, a mission to the Gentiles nor no, no. Uh, is Peter given that mission. Yeah. In verse 19, 20 and 21, uh, James, after giving a sermon, gives the four things that the Gentiles should abstain from. Idols, unchastity, from what is strangled, and blood. Those four things. Right. Now, idols, what is strangled, and blood all have to do with food. Correct. Okay. It seems good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch. Okay. Okay. With Paul and Barnabas. Mm-hmm. So the assumption is Paul's there. But again, as I said later, the the writer has editorial fatigue and doesn't for, forgets that Paul was here and acts as though he wasn't. Um, and Paul never says he was here. Mm-hmm. At this kind of an event, if this if this is even an historical event, like I said, it falls outside of the purview of the era, the early uh, church source that Martin Hengel talks about, or the we uh, the travel log, the travel diary uh, that Pauline scholars refer to. So they send this letter, and then they go to Antioch. They deliver the letter. Everybody rejoices at their expectations. Uh, Paul and Barnabas remain in Antioch, and after some days, Paul says, let's go return and visit the brethren in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. And Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. Paul thought it best not to take one who had withdrawn from them previously. Paulus, if if there is a real historical Antioch event underlying this made-up Jerusalem council narrative, if it's occurring at this point in Paul's historical life, 
he is hurt. Mm. He has been betrayed. Uh, and so the, the, all I'm trying to say is there's a connection between Paul's description of Antioch in chapter 2 of Galatians and the betrayal of the, the Jerusalem community. And in the book of Acts, you have apostolic council and then the dealing with betrayal. Okay. So narratively, they both belong together. Okay. 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 That, that's all I would point out there. So there's a, there's another place I, I, I'm not sure of the uh, chapter and verse, but where Paul says that, uh, well, at one point he says, um, I have none with me except Timothy. Yeah, that, yeah, that would be a second Timothy. And, okay. um, uh, as you know, Jim, I don't think that the pastoral letters, First and Second Timothy and Titus, were written by Paul. Um, I understand. I, I think they're yeah. they're written around one twenty to reclaim Paul's heritage, yeah, away from the Marcionite tradition, and and so is the Book of Acts. Does that take away from that there. statement, though? No, no. But the question is: Is it historical? Okay. You know, so, so you could say that the Paul of the letters felt abandoned, and we know that Paul experienced that kind of stuff in his own life because we've experienced it as well. Sure, sure. right? And would it um, and would it have been over this issue, over the issue yeah, of know, eating I, with I, Gentiles? Are you referring to the Second Timothy reference? Well, this feeling of of being abandoned. Of I, I not think, knowing I think, who he has with him. Yeah. So I, I think what what we have to deal with, and uh, maybe we can do that next week, mm-hmm. uh, is we, we have to talk about how Paul's theology changed. Because imagine Paul goes out and, and you know, he's he's had his own private time. He's, he took three years off, man, to kind of like going to go to the psychiatric facility down near uh, <laughs> Lebanon and get my head together and come back and go to Arabia for a vacation and coming back and we're going to talk to James and Peter for a couple of weeks and get to know the Jesus tradition a little bit, right? You know, who was Jesus? What was he like? You know, um, whenever I met Bonhoeffer's students and friends, I asked all those kinds of crazy personal <laughs> questions. What was he like? What was it like to be with him? What did he like to talk about? What did you like? What did you do to him? Sure. He, he sure. loved to play by the way. Hmm. Love to take hikes and play ball. and It's very athletic. Um, so his theology changes, but we should, we, we should build to that point this week, because what if in fact, what if in fact it were possible to propose a thesis, and that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're not claiming revelation or inspiration or anything here. It's a thesis. It's a way to read the literature. What if we were able to show that the Apostle Paul, when he was first developing his Christian thinking, that he was doing it within the same theological framework as the Jerusalem church. And when he goes out on his first mission, he is carrying that gospel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay? Now, what if then, we're able to show that that has been inscribed in two letters. And furthermore, what if we're able to show that the other 
eight authentic Pauline letters, I'm not counting the pastorals, the other eight authentic Pauline letters, were written in a flurry between the years 50 and 52. And we sat those letters side by side with those first two letters that were written in 41. And we notice all the differences, and we can trace all of them back to one thing. And if, if you're an evangelical, you want to be here next week because two things are going to happen. One is you're going to change your underwear midstream. And <laughs> number two, number two, you are going to be liberated and freed. I, I think that's wonderful, and I'm I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> Not changing my underwear, but uh, being liberated and freed. <laughs> yeah. But um, in the in the meantime, I'm I'm really fascinated with just what we're talking about right here, and and I I, I guess I'm fascinated with it for for a, a couple of reasons, and it it has to do with what you and Lauren were talking about right at the, the end of, of, of your discourse back and forth. And that's that the church right now is facing something that it has the same type of weight to it as what you're describing, um, the, the division that came over eating with Gentiles um, and 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 that's how the church um, treats, or or even allows themselves, or or disassociates themselves from the LGBT plus community. And it isn't even the community. I mean, it's it's the individual. Even it, it gets right. right down to, you know, to that level. It's like it's almost like, if you will, uh, Peter is eating with Gentiles and then, or, 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 you know, and, and, and then Paul, you know, and, and he jumps up like, you know, no, I wasn't there. I didn't do that. I, you know, it's like, uh, you know, and I think the, I think Christians are really divided over this. I, th I, I think if I don't know anybody from that community, I can be very strong on, oh no, this is wrong, and da 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 da, you know. And then if if I do know somebody, maybe a very close friend or maybe a relative, all of a sudden my my view changes. Well, with this individual, I'm okay with them, and then we kind of like. But if somebody else comes in that doesn't know them and knows I'm a Christian, I'm going to jump up and act like I wasn't fellowshipping with them. You know, and we've got all this kind of weird stuff going on, trying, as Lauren said, trying to cherry pick two or three scriptures and say, see, the Bible says, and Paul says, and... Therefore, I'm on safe ground to be this way. You know, I said I, I said a lot there to come down to. I think we're I think we're in an in extremely interesting time that uh, history is going to look back on, and um, hopefully, we do it right this time. 
Well, as, as long as uh, Protestant Gnosticism is around, we won't. Fair enough. You know, I don't know if I don't. You know, I'm. I don't know. I, I mean, the Catholic tradition has survived. Has survived, right? I I don't know about. I, there's a lot of splits in the Catholic Church sure. that that aren't known to Protestants, uh, and some are very, very, very ugly. They're kind of almost Westboro Baptist type ugly. Mm. Huh. And. Um, I, I don't, the, you know, I, how can the can the Catholic Church pull us out of of this darkness? I don't. I kind of don't think so. I don't think so. Orthodoxy to me is an utter. I'd rather I, I'd rather get in Noah's Ark and float across the ocean than than uh, get into Orthodoxy and float across the ocean. It's more barnacle encrusted and and the wood is rotten and oh Lord have mercy, you know. And, and yet yeah. there seems to be a considerable amount of uh, evangelicals uh, who are returning to orthodoxy. Well, that, what, yeah, but what they're returning to is not orthodoxy. They're returning to the fantasy of the early church that did really good Trinitarian theology. Okay. That's what they're returning to, Okay, right? Okay. That's what they really want. They could get the same thing if they read 20th century thinkers like Karl Barth, Catherine Lacuna, Jürgen Moltmann, you know, Veli mm-hmm. uh, Kerkainen. They could get the same thing, but they don't know the moderns. And so they think if they're going back and reading their precious Athanasius, that they're, yeah, they're, and, and don't, don't laugh. I have an icon of Athanasius right here on my wall from Greece, a blessed icon, you know, and I love Athanasius, but, uh, yeah, but they're 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 confusing the kind of the myth in their head of this pure theology that's that's um, has a different anthropological base. I think that's why they go there. It is a, the, the anthropology is different. It's not Augustinian, mm-hmm. you know. So it's it's more in terms of of grace perf- perfecting nature, uh, you know, um, uh, divinization, you know the God within and all that stuff. Well, I find, I find that also interesting that there seems to be um, a move on the, the part of, uh, uh, well, a large contingency, let's put it that way, to attempt to get back to the way the early church did things. And yet there is at the same time a denial of the writings of the early church fathers. <laughs> That's true. I'm, 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 I'm confused. You're, are you, am I hearing this correctly? Are you saying, okay, say, say that again, because they want to go back to the early church, but they want to ignore the writings of the fathers? Yes, yes. In other really? words, they want to uh, flatline read New Testament. Oh, oh, oh. And... Okay, yeah. we're getting back to the way they did it in the early church. It's like, so we're we're going back to uh, house church, and we're going back to uh, communion, and we're going back to the apostles' creed, uh, doctrine, and, and you know, and those right. things. And then you say, okay, but the early church fathers, this is what they wrote about. This is the things they talked about. 
and uh, they're like, "Oh no, we don't. Oh no, 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 no. We don't. No, we 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 don't go there. We don't. We don't go into like you know what all these guys wrote. We go into what the Bible says is the way they did it. And it's like I look at it and I say, uh, but how do you understand what they did and why they did it?" without talking or listening, let me put it, let me rephrase that, to what the ones who did it explain on why they did things. <laughs> you know? yeah. What was their really points of point, contention? Jim. What was their points of arguing? What was their points of unity? What brought them together? You know, right. um, but to just do house church, uh, you know, I've, I've read tons of books uh, by, you know, people who are uh, trying to do house church or this or that, and this is the way you do house church. And I'm like, all we're doing is, you know, we're scrambling the eggs left to right instead of right to left. It's like, and when we get it all done, we still have a plate of scrambled eggs. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's like we still have a leader. We still have a worship set. We still have a doctrine of this house church and, you know, whatever. And, right. you know, it's like, you know, yeah. So. I guess in some places, smaller is better. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, we won't go there. Well, <laughs> um. Well, here's the deal. Do you remember back um, 1980-ish? Uh, there was an a, there was an attempt. I think it was in Southern California to bring um, the the dying Jesus movement back to the liturgical stuff with Jack Sparks. Yeah, sure, right. And I thought I thought I thought Sparks was on the right track at the time. You know, and I've always kind of thought that if the church is ever going to get back, it's going to have to be through its liturgy. Hmm. Uh, unfortunately, and very, very sadly, uh, the church's most important uh, theology book is their hymnal or their praise chorus book or whatever. And and that's most people's theology, and it's very bad. Um, but, but it's what they know and what they can sing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so with my, my hope is that as we move away from sacrificial Christianity over the next decade or two, and, and as non-sacrificial Christian ideas begin to become much more generative and, uh, uh, of new, um, uh, sociological structures that we would call church. Okay. As it becomes, the gospel becomes generative of all that we, we will see, I, I hope, uh, that that again in the liturgy, there's something that has to happen when the community gets together and says the name of Jesus together. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. and at, at bottom, at bottom, at minimum, it, it needs to be the breaking of bread and the sharing of a cup. At, at minimum, you know, bam. So you know, in that sense, the Catholic and Orthodox traditions, the more liturgical Protestant traditions, they're correct. The Eucharist has that key role, but we also talked a few weeks back about where the real power of the Eucharist is, and it's not in this sanitized, uh, individualistic nonsense that we're doing today for people, a little theater, you know. 
Sure. Yeah. That's why I find this, this whole conversation really fascinating because it's not just some stale historical thing that was back then. And here's what the early church was dealing with and stuff. It, it, it comes just as Jim brought it into today. It's, it, it has direct implications on things that we're wrestling with right now. Um, as, as we talked about back then, it was the Jew Gentile split. It, uh, today, there's the LGBTQ uh, division, and and for me, uh, Jim, when you when you shared about that, see that really hits home for my family because it's not for us. It's not this theory that we're going through. We, Michaela, as we've talked about before, my daughter, she's she's an evangelist. Um, mm-hmm. She just she right. has friends of all kinds of people, and and they love Jesus. And we have had many conversations as of late of, of genuine concern about family members she can't introduce her friends to mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. They, they are viewed as being uh, – some family members even said, if you even have are friends with a gay person, then you're, you're on the wrong track. Sure. And, and so it's like, um, it's, it's a very real world thing in my family. This isn't just like theory or, you know, thing, uh, um, having, uh, lofty discussions or uh, things like that. This is, this is real. Um, and then, um, it's funny when you were talking about the early church, you know, I never connected those dots. You're right about, we want to get back to the early church. We want to get back to the early church. And then you bring up something like, well, you know, the early church had three views of hell and they were all considered Orthodox. No, there was... (laughs) (laughs) it's like you know it's like well you said you want to get back to the early church that means you gotta open up to accepting some different views of hell there (laughs) well we won't go with that one today well that's why we needed to have a uh a cannon and uh uh sprinkle some holy water on it make it the holy bible uh because uh, you know we could do away with all those early writings that were ap- apostate, right? <laughs> he said, yeah, tongue, so, he said rather tongue in cheek, <laughs> so, <laughs> right? So, but that's why I find it interesting when uh, I, I identify with the struggle going on in the early church that we were just talking about with Paul and his passion that he's writing with. Um, because it it relates to things that just different. It's like same struggle, just different time, different topic. It's like, has that not always been the case? It's like, it goes back to what the past conversations we've had on here about law. Are, is it the problem in the church? We're always looking for who's out. Uh, or, or we have to, we have to mimetically scapegoat and create an out in order to be a community, which the gospel says is exactly what we're not to do. The cross is all about being reconciled around the one that is a failed scapegoat, Jesus. But let's do this as a thought experiment. I don't know if we've done this on this podcast before. So already within two decades of the death of Jesus, the church is is fragmented, big, big lines drawn down the right lines in the sand. Okay. Yeah. Now, we know that the Yohane community is also anti-Petrine, okay? And uh, they're located by tradition in the Ephesus area. Uh, I find it interesting that after Paul goes to Ephesus, he not only seems to have more courage about his own apostleship in the Corinthian letters, 
But in 2 Corinthians in particular, particularly chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6, he's using Johannine themes. Hmm. And I think when Paul realized, you know, hey, I'm not the only outsider. There's this community that was also not part of the Jerusalem church that got expelled or something. And that, that gave him a little chutzpah. And so I want to throw that into the mix. I think um, that's really cool. I mean, because it just brings up that thing too of how we so need, we, we talked last week about Jesus going through his death and, and uh, all by himself mm-hmm. and, and how as humans, we so need that um, support, you know, mm-hmm. many times, just mm-hmm. that person who goes, what we're doing on this podcast actually is you're not crazy. <laughs> you know, and, and I love that, that, that Paul's out there kind of like, am I just out here all by myself? And then, and then gets in touch with these different communities. And then, like you said, you see a new boldness in him that it's like, I'm not alone. I'm not yeah. crazy. That's right. That's really cool. Yeah. I, I, I think, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun to, to do this kind of thinking in and around Paul's life. Um, I'm very grateful for Pauline scholarship. The, the last 100 years of Pauline scholarship has been really remarkable. I mean, really remarkable. It's, in, fact, in fact, I'll say this. The last 100 years in New Testament studies has been nothing short of revelatory. And the, 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 only, the, 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 the problem is, is that you have to do so much, so much work in all these documents. And you have to, like, for example, when was Luke written? When was John written? When was Romans written? Well, how do you know? How would you even begin to know? Well, it says in the front of my Bible, Romans was written in 54. (laughs) Well, where do you get that from? He he signed it at the top, you know, when he turned it in, he put the date. (laughs) So, So, for example, just creating a chronology of Paul's life, requires some very, very nitty gritty work just to create a chronology, you know, and then to have a chronology of the early church that you can build around that, you know, that's hard work. That's a lot of documents and not just new Testament, but the early apostolic fathers, the second century fathers, the second century Gnostic sects, second century Jewish Christian literature, you know, there's a lot in there. You know, and you, you, and, and if the the big macro picture, uh, I don't think most New Testament scholars ever get to, you know, anymore. They don't anymore. Um, they used to, but they don't anymore. So, un- but, understanding that, Michael, for our listeners, if if somebody wanted to um, kind of pull their knowledge up a notch or two. You you said the last hundred years of Pauline uh, studies is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, is is there someone that they could go to? Is there um, uh, an author or a series of books or that you would recommend uh, for the average uh, reader? So if if you're an average reader, I'm assuming uh, that words that have more than three syllables won't bother you too much. I'm teasing. Um, for the average reader, I would go pick up Douglas Campbell's Pauline Dogmatics. Excellent. Now, that book, for me, is going to be a benchmark for the next 30, 40, 50 years in Pauline studies. Because 
Pauline scholarship really has not engaged that book this that much yet, but it is it to me. Um, it's Paul's Gospel writ large. Campbell, for my money, Campbell is the only person apart from Marcion to understand Paul, and even Marcion misunderstood him. But I think that Doug Campbell has set Paul free in his work. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah, I think awesome. sometimes we get on subjects and we, we put a lot of information out there, but then we don't really always follow through with the resources on where a person can yeah. begin their own research. So right. that, that's Well, the that's nice good. thing about Pauline Dogmatics by Campbell is that he's engaging with the evangelical tradition mm-hmm. in that book. Okay. He's, he's, you know, and he's a very well-read uh, thinker in Karl Barth. You know, he, uh, very orthodox, I mean, beautifully orthodox, and and and, and incredible, what a mind. I mm-hmm. mean, oh, jeez, mm-hmm. you know. Excellent. Wow, very cool. All right, you guys, well, we're, we're at time for this week. Um, we're going to pick it up next week uh, looking at... Uh, Paul's evolving theology. That'll be fun. Um, so until then, Jim, where can people get a hold of your book? Uh, on Amazon. All right. And it's a worthy read, everybody. And uh, Michael, where can people find your stuff? Same. And YouTube. All right. Cool. Thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll see you all next week. 